0: In the past year or so, um, the concept of us being sons of God has been uh, kind of a game-changer for me. Uh, so let me just dive into, let me read this one more time, uh, Romans chapter 80. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery, you fall back in the field, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Um, in this passage, Paul really intentionally uses the word for sons. He could have said children of God, and in fact, he does say children of God, he uses that term a lot. Um, but it's in this passage in particular, he uses the word um, explicitly for sons, um, a male error. So you could wonder, uh, as I did, why does he, do that? Um, does Paul just not want to write to the ladies at this point? And obviously that's not the case. That's not what he's doing here. Um, Paul is using the term sons of God uh, in the direct context because he's talking about our inheritance. In this context, he's writing a Roman context, uh, and only be the son who receives the inheritance after the father passes away. Um, but that's not the only reason that Paul is doing this. Um, as for me, when um, I hear the, the term son of God, there's one person in particular that I think of, and I think that that's Paul's intention right here. Um, right here, Paul is aligning us with the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, but, but as you study the scriptures, you're actually going to find out that, that the term son of God, that's used for more people than Jesus. Um, if we go all the way back, um, actually, it's, if we first go, out, go back to Luke in the genealogy of Christ in Luke chapter 5, Um, excuse me, Luke chapter three. Adam is called a son of God. So chronologically speaking, Adam would be the first person who could be identified as a son of God. So what does it mean that Adam was a a son of God? Well, certainly it's not in the same sense that Jesus is a son of God. Jesus is divine, Adam is not. Um, Adam was just completely human. Uh, but there's a sense in which he was a son of God. So let's turn back to Genesis chapter 1. and says this in Genesis 1, 26 through 27. At the creation of man, at the creation of Adam. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Um, so when we think about Adam as an image of God, you could spend years just on that topic, and people have, people have written books on, what does that mean? People have debated and argued. But I just want to emphasize two particular things in this passage right here. First, Adam is made in the likeness of God. As for all the other animals, God says, let them reproduce after their own likeness or after their own image. But as for Adam, he is made in the likeness of God in the image of God. The word image there, and this is interesting, um, the, the Hebrew word is the same word used for an idol. Um, and so when God says don't make any false images, when he says don't make any carved images um, of me, uh, part of the reason is because God has already made his image. A man stands as an image of God. And, and you think about what what is, what's the point of an idol? What, what's the point of an image? And the point of an idol isn't to be worshipped in and of itself, right? Isaiah kind of mocks people who do that. Um, but the point of an idol um, is to point to some greater power. And obviously, when we're talking about idols, we're talking about false gods, um, but the idea of an idol is it's a physical representation that's supposed to make the unseen known or understandable. Obviously, again, when we're talking about idols, that's not a good thing, um, but, but apply that to Adam. Apply that to Adam or humankind as the image of God. We are supposed to stand as the likeness of God. We're supposed to make God known to the world. And in this passage, we see that we are made uh, in the likeness of God and that he gives us power and rulership, authority over creation. And for any ruler, uh, a ruler needs wisdom, right? We see that throughout the scriptures. And, And it's interesting because one of the first things that God tells man is don't take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, how is Adam supposed to be a good ruler if he doesn't even know how to distinguish between good or evil? You could think, well, like, that's ridiculous, right? And, and I think that what the author of Genesis is doing right there is, Adam obviously was supposed to receive wisdom, but he was not supposed to receive that wisdom through his own means or effort. Adam was supposed to receive the ability to distinguish between good and evil by what he was found doing in the garden, by walking with God. That's where he was supposed to find wisdom, in relationship with God, in community with God and his wife. That's where he was supposed to gain wisdom. So as as a, a kind of son of God, um, first, Adam is supposed to be God's likeness. He's supposed to express God's character to all of creation. And secondly, he's supposed to rule in subjection to God. He's not supposed to take that authority for himself and just do whatever he wants, um, but he's he's supposed to complete God's agenda right like that's Adam's job and to have a relationship with God now Adam very famously fails if you didn't know that I'm so sorry you should read Genesis um, but but he fails right he's not a good son of God um, and he falls into depravity the second person that we see who stands as a kind of son of God and this uh, this person the the exact term son of God is not used of him but God claims him as a son Um, Go ahead and turn, if you would, to 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is the Davidic covenant. This is one of the key passages of the Old Testament. Um, And and God is saying this to to David as he makes a covenant with him. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house in my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Alright, so at this point, like if you have read the New Testament, you're like, okay, like I know he's talking about Jesus right now, right? Like, I get what's happening, this is a prophecy about Jesus, and maybe in a way it is, but if you continue, um, you're going to see someone else named. Uh, verse 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, and with the stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, who might put away from before you, and so in this passage, uh, God is talking about someone who is going to commit iniquity. Do you think that's Jesus? No, no, it's not. No. It's not talking about Jesus. Jesus doesn't do that. We're not heretics here. Um, yeah, he, he's not talking about Jesus in that portion. So this points forward to Jesus, yes, but immediately in this context, Yahweh is talking about Solomon. Yahweh is saying Solomon is going to be like my son, and when Solomon strays, I'm going to discipline him with the rod of men. I'm going to be like a father to him. That's, that's Yahweh's heart for Solomon. And we see that expressed in one of the first interactions that Solomon has with Yahweh in 1 Kings chapter three. Yahweh appears to Solomon in his dream um, and he offers him whatever Solomon would like. He, asks, he says, ask what I should give you. This is Solomon's answer in verse six. He says this: You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, in an uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Yahweh, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to how to go out or to come in. And so, in the midst of this. Um, Solomon is, is directly citing the Davidic covenant. You see elements are reflected exactly right here. He's calling your remembrance this covenant that you always make with David. He says this in verse 8. Your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your great people, that I may discern, listen to this, discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? This is a a direct call back to the Garden of Eden. Solomon is saying, and and think about who Solomon is, right? Like this guy is educated. Um, He's not a child, he's a man at this point. Uh, But as he's praying to God, he comes with this humility. He says, I'm like a child, like I I don't even know how to distinguish between good and evil. I have no discernment of my own. In this moment, Solomon says, Lord, I need you to show me what to do. I cannot rely on my own mind to figure out how to govern this people, I do not know how to do that. I need you to guide me and tell me exactly what to do. You tell me how to distinguish between good and evil because I'm not capable of doing that on my own. He comes with such humility. And recognize again, Solomon is, is he's acting as a son of God, a kind of son of God, and he's coming to this place of authority and leadership where he is supposed to express God's agenda. He is supposed to bring God's rule to those underneath him. And Solomon comes with absolute humility. He asks God to give him wisdom. And so again, with Solomon, um, unfortunately, doesn't work out great, right? Starts out real good, but then um, he, his heart is turned, the scripture says, through foreign women. He uh, makes all of these political marriage alignments and those wives turn his heart away from Yahweh he begins worshiping false gods and brings that idolatry into Israel and leads all of Israel astray. And, and it's interesting, the scriptures, you consistently see this theme of, of idolatry being equated with adultery. Idolatry, the worship of false deities, the worship of anything other than God, is like spiritual adultery. In fact, uh, I I found this out because I I took Hebrew recently, but in the Hebrew, the word Baal, when you read that in the scriptures, they began to worship Baal. One of the translations is literally husband. Baal can mean husband. And so the Israelites, their hearts are turned away and they're committing adultery with these false gods, and that leads to their absolute ruin decimation, and we see that first and foremost in Solomon. So Solomon, he, he fails again as this son of God, and his kingdom crumbles beneath him. Um, the, the third person is really more of an entity. He's referred to as the son of God, um, and, and that's the entity of, of national Israel. And the first time that God mentions this is actually back in Exodus, but um, I'm going to turn to Hosea, so chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. He always says this, and he's going to use two names for Israel. It's Israel and Ephraim. He's talking about the same uh, nation right there. He says this, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more that they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed. And so what's happening here? Book of Hosea, if you're familiar with it, um, Hosea is prophesying against Israel who has apostatized. They've turned away from God. They've begun to worship these false idols. And here towards the end of the book, Yahweh is remembering the beginning. And he says, I called you. You're my firstborn son. I brought you out of Egypt. I was the one who was healing you. I was the one who was guiding you with these cords of love, he says later. And yet Israel refuses to recognize his father's heart for them and they too they turn away to these false gods, these false deities, and they receive the penalty for that. Think about the point of Israel. Um, I think as as a young church boy, um, I would think of Israel as like, oh like they're supposed to be separate from everyone else kinda of like monks, you know, and like all the nations are like doing their things and God's like, Well I've given up on them, but like here's Israel and like Abraham so it seems pretty nice, so I guess all of his descendants can just, like, be separate and then go to heaven one day. And that's kind of how I thought about it. But but God's intention for Israel is so much more than that. Um, he says that he wants them to be a kingdom of priests. He says to Abraham, I want your descendants to be a light to the nations. That's his desire. It's not that Israel would just go off and do their own thing and be their own thing. It's that, that like, like Jesus says in Matthew, he says that he wants them to be a city on a hill, right? That's talking about Israel. That's not initially talking about the church. That's the design of Israel, that they would be completely set apart, that they would be listening to God's wisdom, that they'd be communing with God, and that to some degree they would assert his authority on earth, just like Adam was commanded all the way back in the garden. That, he, well, that, that was his desire for Israel, that they would be a model for everyone else. This is what it looks like to be a nation, to be a human being committed to Yahweh. That's what he wanted from them. And we see Israel swinging back and forth on the pendulum. Either they want to be just like the nations, or they want to have no interaction with the nations. And both are wrong. Both are absolutely wrong. Both go against God's heart for them. Their failure is the same failure as Solomon. Um, It's interesting in a... Excuse me. Earlier on in the story of Israel, we see this instance where they're led away at Baal Peor to worship these false gods. That's the the famous story of Balaam, and he comes in, and Balak's like, hey, curse these guys. They seem intimidating, and Balaam tries to, and he's incapable of doing so because Yahweh won't let him. But then we find out later later that Balaam goes to Balak, the king of the Moabites, and he says, you know what? You can get Yahweh to curse on himself. If you send in your daughters, if they seduce them, if they bring them into your worship, Yahweh himself will curse them. That's the first real instance where we see Israel just like absolutely fail. And again, it's this adultery tied to idolatry. Towards the very end of Israel's story in the book of Nehemiah, and man, like Nehemiah you get so hopeful, right? Because it's like they've been in exile. God has like, punished them for what they're doing. It seems like they finally get it. They're coming back. They're building the wall. They're building the temple. Everything's going great. And then you get to the end of the book of Nehemiah. And they're taking foreign wives again. And they're breaking the Sabbath again. And they're not recognizing the beauty and the purity of the law again. And so you have these bookends where at the start and at the finish, their hearts are turned away to this adultery and idolatry. It's the same failure song Solomon that is eventually National Israel's failure. And if you read the Old Testament, um, which you should, it's like three fourths of your Bible. If you read the Old <laughs> Testament, things can get real bleak, especially if you don't go to the New Testament. You can think, man, like, Yahweh has this desire to have have a son, like the son of God, and the son of God, he's supposed to bring God's rule, he's supposed to rely on God's wisdom, he's supposed to be in communion with God, and man, every time God tries to have a relationship with human beings, it just goes sour, and they're just overwhelmed by their sin, and their wretchedness, and their depravity, and their commitment to idolatry, and adultery, and man, like, there's no hope. Like, that's where you can get but then you should turn the page, you should really turn the page at that moment, and you encounter a different Son of God, a unique Son of God. You encounter Jesus, who is the perfect Son of God. And man, like, when we look at Jesus, I think growing up in church and like looking at the flannel graphs, right? Like I had this idea that that Jesus was kind of like this ethereal being and he just kind of like floated around and he like maybe just talked like Siri and didn't have any emotions, you know? And he just came to like be this mouthpiece for God and ah, yes, love everybody, stuff like that. And and like that's not who Jesus was, okay? Like yes, Jesus was completely God, but he was also completely man, right? In Philippians it says that he empties himself. He takes on the form of a bondservant, that he comes in likeness of man, and over and over again throughout his time on earth, Jesus is communicating everything that I'm doing, the words that I'm saying, the words that I'm doing, the judgment that I discern with, all of that is not because I'm so wise, like it's, it's because I'm in reliance upon the Father. Everything that Jesus did was because he was re- in reliance upon the Father. Now is Jesus capable of doing those things by himself? Yes. Uh, Theologians say that he laid aside the independent use of his divine attributes. um, In a little bit more understandable terms, everything that Jesus did was in reliance upon the Father. And and why did he do that? At least partially, it it was to show us how to be human. That's what he was doing. That, that should be our heart. That should be our desire. Everything that I do, I want to do it in complete reliance upon the Father. And how do I do that? Well, look at Jesus. Look at what he did and ask him to manifest himself in your own heart and in your own life because that's his intention. That's his desire for us. So, so let's just look at Jesus because that's the best thing that you could possibly do with any of your time. Jesus is the perfect son of God. And he communicates three specific things About his relationship to the Father First he communicates that he was subservient in his speech uh, Let me read to you from John twelve forty nine. He says this For I have not spoken on my own authority But the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment What to say and what to speak In other translations Jesus says that The Father has told me what to say and how to say it Everything that Jesus did. And, and like, initially, I think that your mind would probably go to things like the Sermon on the Mount, right, like amazing oration, or, or like uh, the Discourse on the Mount of Olives or something. As he's teaching, and it's like, man, like, of course. Like, he was dependent upon the Father, and the Father is revealing his words through Jesus, and everything that he said and the way that he said it was from dependence on the Father, and that's true. That's absolutely true. When Jesus spoke, he spoke with authority, because he was relying upon the Father In the words that he said, and how to say them. But it goes beyond that, right? Because it's every word that he speaks. Like like think about that, think about the 30 years that Jesus was just kind of like kicking it as a normal human being, you know? Like Jesus was just having these normal interactions with people, and even then, even before his public ministry, he, he was speaking the Father's words to people. The words that he said and how he said it, that was all out of absolute reliance and dependence upon the Father. And man, like that was never just like this this blind religion for Jesus. It wasn't. Like that was this relationship. That was Jesus walking in the garden with the Father, if you will. We see Jesus regularly, it says in the Gospel of Luke, it says that he regularly withdrew to desolate places to be alone with the Father. And like, that's what human beings are designed to do. Like We're meant to withdraw to desolate places to be alone with the Father. But that's not all Jesus does, right? He, like, he's not this monk who just goes out and like you never hear from him again. Like, he goes up the mountain to commune with the Father and then he comes down to heal us. And that's what he does time and time and time again throughout the entirety of the gospel. That's his heart. That's how he operates. The words that he says and how he says it is from subservience to the Father but not only his words, but also his works. It says this in John chapter five, verse 36. The testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The works that Jesus did were the works that the Father had given him to accomplish. Think about who Jesus was. Like, think about the the power that this man had. Think about the, the intellectual ability this man had. Think about how pleasant it was to interact with Jesus Christ. You think he could have used that charisma to make an earthly kingdom? Like, definitely. He definitely could have, if he wanted to. That would have been easy. Like, Alexander the Great lived shortly before Jesus and 30 years conquered the known world. Jesus lived the same amount of time, more or less, that Alexander lived and stayed within the same geographic location for the entirety of that time, except for a little pilgrimage to Egypt when he was a baby. Why? Like, why would he do that? Why would he do that? Because the works that he did were the works that the Father had for him. Jesus was completely capable of doing so much more uh, on a human level, right? Like, he could have gone, he could have conquered empires, even without military violence or whatever, like he could have used um, just his ability to speak and relate to people to to influence nations during his time on earth, but he chose not to. Why? Because that's not what the Father had for him. He came to minister to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and to institute the church. And from the apostles that Jesus hand selected, that's where the gospel goes out. Jesus had very specific goals in his life, and those goals didn't come from him, like, sitting down and, like, drawing out on a whiteboard, like, okay, what are my pros, what are my cons, like, where do I need to go from here, what's my five-year plan, right, like, that's not what Jesus was doing, necessarily, like, Jesus, he, he was in communion with the Father, and from that communion, communion, he knew exactly what he needed to be doing. He knew the direction that he needed to go in. He knew the conversations that he needed to have. And you see that in his common interactions. There's this passage where where it says that uh, he's trying to draw the disciples away to have some intimate time with them, right? Like they've been ministering nonstop. And he's like, okay, we're going to get away from the crowds. It's just going to be me and the disciples. He gets away, and all of a sudden, like, the crowds are still there. (laughs) They have found him, and they want him to interact with them more. And he does. Like, he drops his plan because he recognizes, all right, like, this is what the Father has for me, right? Like he, he has that ability to like have a direction, but then turn, like mid-plan, and do whatever it is the Father has set before him. That's how Jesus operates. The works that he does are the Father's works. The words that he speaks are the Father's work. And, and this has been interesting to meditate on recently. He's also subservient in his discernment. Uh, it says this in John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. By the way, Jesus isn't falsely humble. Um, I, I don't know about you, like, I've interacted with people, I, I go to a to, to master's college, right, and there's people there who are, like, these amazing musicians, and, like, they've practiced violin 12 hours a day since they came out of the womb, um, and they're, they're amazing, right, and I can go to them and be like, oh my goodness, like, you're so good at violin, like, oh, stop, I'm not good, like, I'm horrible, and I'm like, well, no, <laughs> that's just not true, that's a lie, actually, that's just inaccurate, I know you're trying to be humble here, but that's just not true, that's not what Jesus is doing here, that's not what he's doing, he says, I can do nothing on my own. He's not just being cute. He's not just trying to get a compliment. No, Jesus, you can do things on your own. Peter tried to do that and then got slapped for it. Not literally, but spiritually. Um, like, that's not what Jesus is doing. He says, I can do nothing on my own. John 530, as I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The word judge right there is really interesting. Um, it's the word used for separating meat from chaff. It's a word of, like, I'm going to get down in the weeds, literally and metaphorically. um, I'm going to discern, okay, here's this motivation, here's this motivation. Uh, Here's where this person's heart is at right now. And he says as he's doing that, as he's judging, as he's discerning, none of it is from his own will. It is because he's in reliance upon the Father that he's able to do that. And man, like, don't we need that? Aren't there so many situations where, where there's some sort of conflict, there's some sort of misunderstanding, and we just automatically assume, I know exactly what this person's trying to do. They're trying to manipulate me. Right? They're trying to pull the world over my eyes and get what they want out of me. Well, not this time, not so fast. And it's, it's false. We rely on our own discernment, and we pay the price for it with greater conflict. But Jesus says, I don't do that. That's not how I operate. I operate by being completely submissive to the Father, and the Father shows me how to discern how to judge. It's all in reliance upon the Father. It's exactly what we need. Jesus is the perfect Son of God. It says this in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And his, his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. And he shall not judge by what his eyes see, nor decide disputes by what his ears hear. All the way back in Isaiah, we're already seeing the character of Jesus. We're already seeing someone who is completely Submissive to the father. He doesn't judge by what his eyes see. He doesn't decide based on what his ears hear He goes to the father he communes with the father and then he acts out of that position of complete Reliance upon the father and that's what he models for us as the son of God That's what it means to be human. It means to do everything in complete subjection to the father Not out of this hesitant religiosity where we're trying to prove something but but out of joy Like, that's how Jesus is operating. You think about his relationship with the Father. He never did anything half-heartedly. He never did anything um, kind of wishing that he could do something else, right? He was completely sold out to the Father. That's how he operated. And so, so how does this relate to us? How does this relate to us? Back to Romans chapter eight, verses 12 through 17. Let me read it again. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We are identified as sons of God. And you think think about Romans chapter 7, right? In Romans chapter 7, you have this man who is doing his darndest to try to please God. Like, that's all he wants to do. And and, and he says that the good that I intend to do, I do not do. He's incapable of doing it. And and sometimes I think that we just stop right there. We think I'm incapable of doing anything good. We think I am sold as a slave under sin. And and there's no way that I can please God. There's no way that I can please the Father. There's no way. There's not. And and if you are operating as the person in Romans chapter 7, there isn't a way. Because the person in Romans chapter 7 is operating under the law, and they're trying to accomplish the will of the Father through their own flesh, through their own body, through their own means, through their own capability, and they are unable to please the Father. (laughs) They turn the page. You turn the page to Romans chapter 8, it says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because God has done the Spirit. God has done through the Spirit what the flesh could not do, weakened by the law. He has fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law through us who walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. As long as we're walking according to the flesh, we will find Romans 7 painfully true of ourselves. And yet, back to Romans chapter 8, we are debtors, not to the flesh. To live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. To live according to the spirit. Like you read, and, and please like I, I exhort you I encourage you, read through Romans 6 through 8 and figure it out through prayerful dependence upon the spirit. Do not just take my own interpretation for that. Don't take anyone's interpretation for that. Like, take those interpretations into account and then go before the Lord and ask him to teach you the absolute truth because there's so much disagreement through this. And I've benefited so much just through wrestling through it with the Lord by myself. Like, please do that. But, But you see this basic outline in Romans chapter six through eight. In Romans six, you see Paul making these statements. He's saying that you're no longer enslaved to sin, right? That bondage is broken. Let me read to you from Romans chapter 6. Uh, this is Romans 6, 5 through 11. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection. Because, and man, like, just... Man, like, when we read the New Testament, you should be so blown away by how often the authors of Scripture are directly tying your identity into that of Christ himself. Like, like, that should freak you out a little bit. Like, really, like it should genuinely kind of just blow all of your categories away. It says, if you've been united with him in a death like his, you will also be united with him in a resurrection like his. We've been united with him in his death. Back to Romans chapter 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Okay, what's that saying? We know that our old self was crucified with him. this old old proclivity towards sin, this old old subservience to sin, The, the way that we used to live where we were a complete slave to sin, that person has been crucified with Christ. Did Christ just swoon on the cross? Was he up there and then he just fainted and then woke up three days later? No, he was dead. His heart stopped beating. Blood and water poured out of his side. In the same way, our old self is crucified, with christ brought to absolutely nothing why what's the reason it says this so that so we would no longer be enslaved to sin that's why jesus died it wasn't just and 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 this is extremely important yes Jesus died to to free us from the punishment of sin. And because of Jesus' death on the cross, we do not have to be terrified of hell anymore. We are going to be united with God in eternity. He has paid for all of our sins, praise the Lord. But that's not all he has done. He died so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That is his intent with his death and resurrection, we would no longer be enslaved to sin. It says this in verse 8, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Christ is dead to sin and alive to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It, it doesn't matter how true we feel Romans 7 is of us in any given instance. It, it doesn't matter if, if you feel like, yeah, man, like the, the good that I wanna do, I'm just incapable of doing it. It doesn't matter if you feel dis- defeated by sin and owned by sin. At the end of the day, you go back to the truth of Scripture, not your feelings, not your emotions, not your experience. That's what's absolutely true. And the truth of scripture in Romans chapter 6 is that we reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. That word reckon there, like that's not, it's not a weak word. That, that word isn't like, oh, well, I'll just play pretend, right? Um, like, I know that I'm just like an evil person and all I ever want to do every single day is just sin all the time. And i really like to just do that, but like I have to make God happy with me. Um, but I'll pretend like I'm dead to sin. No. <laughs> The word reckon is used of accounting. This has the connotation of add everything up and at the end of your list, you come to the conclusion, you come to the sum, I am dead indeed to sin. Reckon yourselves as dead to sin. No matter how much you're struggling with it, and I admit, like, yeah, we struggle with sin. We struggle against the world. We struggle against the enemy. He's still crafty. He's still deceitful. He's still trying to deceive us, and he will if we let him. We are still able to present our members as slaves to lawlessness, it's about to say, and we're commanded not to. But at the end of the day, I reckon, I add up, and I find out I am dead to sin. It has no dominion over me. It has no power, no control over me. It cannot make me do anything against God's will. Nothing, it says in Romans 8, can separate us from the love of Christ, not even yourself. Nothing you've ever done. Nothing you ever will do can separate you from that love. You can abide in that love, and you can please God through that space. Back to Romans 8. It says this in in verse 15. I want to center in on this really quick. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. What's he talking about with that? That spirit of slavery that, that leads into fear. What's he talking about there? Well, I, I think first, um, definitely, it's is what we just said, right? We are no longer enslaved to sin. Sin is no longer our master. It's not calling the shots anymore. But but secondly, and I want to be I want to be extremely careful with how I say this. And I wouldn't have said this if I didn't find a very good theologian also agrees with me. <laughs> so bear with me. Um, but but it's it's that our primary relationship with God. Is that of a son who is living in confidence with his father's affections? That's our primary relationship with God. It's he's my father. I am his son. He loves me. His favor is lavished upon me, it says in Ephesians chapter one. And and the result of that is a slave like submission to the Father. The result of that is a godly fear of a a recognition of Yahweh is absolutely supreme. He's absolutely powerful and wonderful and beautiful, and nothing is more powerful than him. That's what that leads to. But sometimes we put the cart before the horse. And sometimes we think of ourselves first as just a slave who is terrified of the master. There are times where we have this spirit of slavery, where we think, man, like, I don't want to do anything that's going to make a God angry with me. Like, you, you think about the relationship of a slave with the master. It, is the slave just, like, super buddy-buddy with the master? They're like, man, like, I love you. Like, I'm just kicking it with you. Like, this is great. We have such a great relationship. No, like, when the slave is serving the master, just like normally, um, it's, they're doing that because they have to. Like, they're doing that because they have an obligation to. They're doing that because they fear consequences. I better keep my master happy because otherwise I am going to get slapped. I better keep my master happy because I want a raise. I better keep my master happy because I want better living conditions. And and living in that space, and that produces guilt and fear and anxiety. That's all that does. It produces death. That's what that spirit and that mindset does. If our only thought is, man, like I just have to keep God happy because I'm terrified of what he could do to me. Man, I got to make God happy because I want something. I want righteousness. I want heaven. I want these things. So I better make God happy with me. If that's what we front load, we are in serious trouble And, and it's going to produce guilt and shame and anxiety. And if that's where you're at, you need to repent of it. Like, Jesus didn't die so that you would just be guilt-ridden all the time. Jesus didn't die so that you'd be motivated by fear and shame. Like, that's not what he did. And if we find ourselves fearful or ashamed, man, we confess our sins, and then he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, and to pull us back into communion with him, into relationship with him. But that is the emphasis. It's the relationship with him. It's the communion with him. It's walking in the garden with the Father. It's withdrawing to desolate places to be alone with the Father. And when we do that, that sorts our priorities. (laughs) When we get that straight, when we are communing with the Father, when we're abiding in Christ, sin's not all that attractive anymore. Like, if you spend your days meditating on the scriptures and, and talking about them as you walk away or as you lie down, when you're doing that, when you're consumed with the Lord and desire to be in fellowship with him, man, like, like, when sin presents itself as an option, it doesn't seem like a very good option anymore. We have to emphasize our relationship with the Father. And I do want to clarify, because you could totally misunderstand what I'm saying right here. Um, Paul calls himself a slave of God. Okay, and, and at the end of the day, it's like, God's will goes. Like, I am completely subservient to him. I want to be a slave of God, even as Christ himself is called the servant of the Lord. At the end of the day, we do have a fear of the Lord. This reverence, and even a kind of terror, it says in Isaiah. Those things are included, but the the emphasis needs to be on our relationship with God. He is our Father, and we are his sons. And we are drawn into communion with him. That's his desire for us. And from that, that position, from that security of a son who has a father who loves him, flows complete submission and godly fear. If you try to submit without having a relationship with God, you're gonna be miserable, because everything inside of you is still gonna be wanting to take control. But if you come before the Lord, and if you recognize his heart and his beauty, his desire and his love for you, submission is completely natural just like it was for Jesus. Jesus was never fighting to be able to submit to the Father. He was not, never trying to like punch down his human body so that he could keep listening to the Father. Sometimes we think of our bodies as that which ties us to sin, but in reality, it's our bodies through which we express the glory of God. It's our bodies through which we do works that glorify our Father in heaven. God's intent for your flesh and for your body is to be a vessel for his glory. The works that you do, the words that you speak, the judgment that you discern with, that's also to flow out of submission to the Father. I think um, there's times where we try to follow what Jesus says without living like he does. There's there's times where we read Jesus saying, love your enemies, and we say, yeah, I'm gonna try. And (laughs) we can't. It's impossible. We find it so difficult. There are times where we see Jesus telling us to live this radical, sold-out life for God, and we see the beauty of that. Like the man in Romans 7, we see the beauty in the scriptures, and we say, yeah, I want that, and I'm going to do that. We try with with every ounce of our effort to accomplish that, and yet we find ourselves incapable. And, And that's not the Lord's intent for us. The Lord's intent for us is to mimic the lifestyle of Christ as well as his commandments. And, and how did Jesus live? Jesus lived in constant communion with the Father. Man, like, if, if I'm if I'm constantly pouring in the influence of the world through social media and news outlets and ungodly conversations and all these different things, if that's all of my input, guess what's going to come out? What I've put in. But if my constant communion is with the Father and reflecting on his goodness and meditating on the Word and, and talking to all of you about his Word, do you know what's going to come out that? You become what you behold. You are incapable of glorifying God without beholding the glory of God on a regular basis. <laughs> like That's what he's wanted from the beginning. That, that we would just be drawn into communion with him so that we can reflect him. And so at the end of the day, all we need to do, the real answer to all of our difficulties, is that we would turn to Jesus. That we would behold him that we rejoice in him, that we would taste and see that he is good and to sit in communion with him. Well, let me read to you uh, from John 5, 39-40. Jesus says this to, to the Pharisees. and man, like I need to take this to heart <laughs> because I study the Bible, you know. He says this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. I often search the scriptures trying to figure out what do I do with my life? How can I have discernment? How do I make the right decision? How do I make God happy with me? How do I become more righteous? But if I'm refusing to come to Jesus, I will not receive life. Sometimes we get just enough of Jesus to feel guilty and not enough to feel confident. (laughs) we, We behold. Jesus, and as we behold him, he transforms us drastically. Let me read to you from 2 Corinthians 3. Paul's been talking about how the Israelites, they don't have an understanding, they they can't see the scriptures properly. He says when they read Moses, this veil lies over them. they can't receive the truth. He says this in verse 16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, listen to this, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul is saying, as we behold the glory of Jesus Christ in the scriptures, as we see that, we begin to reflect that. We are transformed from one one degree of glory into another. You become what you behold. So behold Christ. There are instances, for sure, where we're going to find ourselves anxious. Paul himself records this, this time in, I think it's 2 Corinthians, where he says, I despaired of life itself, because he was just so pushed to the edge. And he says, but that was to make me rely on God who can raise the dead and not my own faculties. If you find yourself guilty and anxious, the answer is to turn to God who can raise the It's not to try to fight and figure out how to do this in your own capability. It's to behold him and trust that as you look at him, you will become like him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your intention for us that we would be sons of God. We are so aware that we are unable to do that in and of ourselves. Lord, we cannot fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, no matter how hard we try, but when we walk by faith, when we accept the spirit, when we rely upon you, you transform us. And it's not just this future hope, Lord, it's not just uh, this, this thing that's gonna happen one day, it's right now, as we behold you right now, you're conforming us to the image of your son. And so Lord, would you give us the discernment to recognize when we are walking out of guilt and anxiety and shame, out of fear. And Lord, would we confess those things to you and turn to you so that we can receive love and joy and peace. Jesus, draw us into communion with you and make us more and more like your son father. Pray these things in confidence knowing that it is your desire to do exactly that and that you are sure to accomplish it. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus.